Jerusalem Church is not filled with ex-presidents or celebrities or members of the mafia, at least, uh, at least I'm assuming that. So I'm guessing receiving serious death threats are not regular occurrences in your life. Uh, death threats are rather undesirable. I think we could agree on that. But you can imagine how receiving a serious death threat would impact your life. Uh, you would start to rethink some things. Um, maybe where you go. Uh, maybe you would stay home a little bit more. Uh, you might uh, start thinking about a concealed weapons license, uh, home security, or even personal bodyguards, which cost a lot of money. People who receive death threats uh, usually don't seek out a closer relationship with those who are threatening them. Uh, when you find out that someone wants you dead, you probably don't treat them to lunch. That's, that's probably true. Um, if you're a Christian, at least thousands, if not millions of people in the world want you dead. Islam is no friend of Christianity. Communism is no friend of Christianity. How would your life be different if you lived in North Korea, Somalia, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Libya. Christians are in great danger in these places. Do you find it odd that there are Christians who are waving goodbye to America and voluntarily and joyfully going into the most hostile countries for Christ? One of my seminary professors, he went to Eritrea years ago, expecting to die for Christ in Eritrea. And the government ran him out of the country. I think he had guns uh, pointed at him. There are people who love Jesus so much and love their enemies so much, they put their life on the line to penetrate into these dangerous countries with the gospel. Some would call it crazy. Some would call it love. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Jesus escaped death several times throughout his life. But in John 11, he came back into hostile territory where people wanted him dead and raised a man from the dead in front of a crowd. That's not inconspicuous. This stirred things up. And today, we're going to see Jesus escape for one last time only to watch him in the coming weeks head back into hostile territory one last time. It wasn't crazy. Love sent him back. Love for God. Love for us. Do we grasp the depth and extravagance of the love of God for us? Jesus didn't have an easy life. The compassion and love Jesus showed to Lazarus and his family and his friends sparked a monstrous backlash and led to a cross. Why did Jesus even come to this vicious and violent world, this place? When he came, why didn't Jesus run? Stay away from Judea. Stay away from Jerusalem. Why return to where people absolutely want you dead? 
with no concealed weapon, no home security, no personal bodyguards, although Peter gave it a a good one-two punch there. Was it crazy? What if I told you it was the plan all along? What if I told you love compelled Jesus to return? Today it's going to get ugly, folks. Uh, Each of our five points today is ugly. Frightful displays of human depravity, yet in the middle of the baseness of the conclusion of John 11 is a glorious glint of beauty, a beautiful glimpse at the sovereign grace of God. The end of John 11 puts us within two weeks, approximately two weeks of Christ's scandalous trial and death, and chapter 12 puts us within days. We're almost there, but John has so much more to teach us before we get there. You're not going to want to miss the next few years at Jerusalem Church because the drama of the remainder of John will uncover the sovereign grace and love of God in such glorious beauty, such resplendent beauty and power that more joy and confidence in God must arise in us. It just has to happen. Don't miss the beauty of God's glory in this that one man died for the people. One man died for the people and that one sacrificial act showcased the glory and love of God. One man died for the people. The schisma or schism over Jesus continued. Still there was spiritual division. Spiritual division. Throughout the book of John, we have seen this great spiritual division over Jesus. It continued. Lazarus' resurrection caused people to believe. Verse 45 says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now, we don't know if that was saving faith, if that was uh, saving belief, but there's no definitive proof that it wasn't saving faith or saving belief. So it's reasonable that many people, many Jews that day saw the glory of God in Jesus Christ. The grace and power of God flooded their heart with truth and they therefore placed their trust and confidence in Jesus for salvation. But as soon as we rejoice in their faith at the triumph of truth, we are struck again by unbelief and opposition of others. Right after witnessing the most astonishing thing that they had ever seen in their lives, they left the scene and went to the people that hated Jesus the most. They tipped off the Pharisees to the location and latest miracle of Jesus. It it seemed like they didn't like Jesus either. And I don't think that the informants went to convince the Pharisees of the divinity and gloriousness of Jesus. Because in verse 45, the informants are juxtaposed with those who believed. With those who believed. For whatever reason, they went and they woke the sleeping giant. This report to the Pharisees was integral in the rising contempt for Jesus, which ultimately ended in murder. Look closely and you'll find the motive behind the rage, religious agendas, religious agendas. Verse 47 contains this little Greek conjunction, un, which means so or therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you need to ask this question, what is the therefore, therefore? 
What is the therefore, therefore? In verse 46, the Pharisees heard about what Jesus did for Lazarus. Therefore, and now we see in verse 47 what ensued. This is really telling. This is the religious agenda behind the crucifixion of Jesus. Take a look. Verses 47 and 48. So the chief priests... And the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Folks, all opposition to Jesus, whatever form it takes, originates from this kind of thinking. It's me first thinking. It's self-preservation. It's I don't care about truth. I only care about me. There are a few things you should know from Jewish history. Priests and scribes were both influential in the development of Judaism. During the uh, Maccabean period, two opponents formed within Ju uh, Judaism. The Sadducees from the priests and the Pharisees from the scribes. Though both Jewish, they didn't like each other. They didn't agree on a lot of theology. The Sadducees were priests from the lineage of Aaron. Ancestry was important for the propagation of Judaism. The Sadducees were wealthy aristocrats belonging to the high priestly families. They tended to be more ruthless uh, about the application of the written law alone. The Sadducees rejected the resurrection. The high priest was the most important priest in Judaism. He entered into the most holy place one day a year on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifice for his sins and for the sins of the people. He also presided over the Sanhedrin, which we'll get to in a little bit. He was powerful. High priests served for life. However... In the first century, under Roman rule, the high priestly position became more political. Roman rulers appointed high priests based on their political agendas and not based on lineage. So, the Sadducees uh, were composed of the high priest, former high priests, and other priests related to the high priestly family. These chief priests, as they were called, were Sadducees. The Pharisees originated from the scribes. They prided themselves on strict adherence to the law, both written and oral. They were religious separatists and elitists. They were scholars and law experts and loved to have debates over the interpretation of the law. Um, Pharisees were theocrats with great influence among the people. And though the Sadducees or the chief priests held supremacy in the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees held supremacy with the people. Theologian and historian Emil Schur wrote that Pharisees had the greatest influence upon the congregations so that all acts of public worship, prayers, and sacrifices were performed according to their injunctions. Pharisees were devout, loyal to the Old Testament scriptures, believed in angels, in the future coming of the Messiah, even the resurrection of the dead. They ruled the public life in Judaism and held spiritual authority. Now, the Sanhedrin was the great Jewish council composed of Sadducees, Pharisees, elders, and scribes, all led by the high priest. It was essentially the Jewish supreme court. The Sanhedrin held judicial authority in Judea, but only as much as Rome allotted. Rome restricted the Sanhedrin in some ways, including the death penalty. 
Um, every death sentence needed ratification by Rome. Now, an interesting aside. I think this is fascinating. I read that the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin was restricted in the time of Christ to the 11 toparchies of Judea proper. Hence, it had no judicial authority over Jesus so long as he remained in Galilee, but only when he entered Judea. So it's hardcore for Jesus to say, let us go to Judea again. It was not exaggeration for Thomas to say, let us also go that we may die with him. This is hardcore. The, the Sadducees and Pharisees strongly opposed each other on multiple issues. But somehow they stood united in their hatred and abhorrence of Jesus. Now look at verse 47. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the Sunedrion, or the governing council, which almost certainly refers to the Sanhedrin, Sunedrion. It was a gathering of the most powerful and influential Jews in Jerusalem, or in uh, Judaism. This was serious. This was really, really serious. And here's what the discussion centered on. How do we kill Jesus? How do we stop this guy? If you break down verses 47 and 48, you begin to see the self-preservation and religious agenda behind this conspiracy. They, they couldn't dispute his miracles and the overwhelming corroboration of his miracles. They said, for this man performs many signs. Not a few signs, many signs. He's done a bunch of them. We, just, we can't overpower that. Soon enough, the abundance of evidence outweighs any competing arguments. He did the miracles. So they asked, now what do we do? Now what do we do? Consider how far their hatred had brought them. They said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Everyone's going to believe in him. They spoke as if they had some authority over him. If we let him go on like this, how did they plan to stop God? Their hatred pushed them. The Sanhedrin was, was forming a strategy to stop Jesus, to stop God. They feared what his success would bring. How would the success of Jesus impact him? Bingo. There you have your motive. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Can't you just hear the self-preservation and religious agenda? They had three primary concerns. Number one, if people followed and believed Jesus, then that would mean they're not following and believing them. Their religion, their influence, their laws and customs. Jealousy drove this conspiracy. Mark 15, 7 says that Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. They were jealous. They were jealous and therefore furious at Jesus. Dr. Peter Langman wrote in Psychology Today that envy can be a motivation for murder. Back in 2009, Stephen Morgan killed Johanna Justin Jinich 
a 21-year-old Wesleyan University student. In his journal, Morgan expressed that it was okay to go on a killing spree at Wesleyan. Why? About two hours uh, prior to the murder, Morgan mentioned in his journal the smart and beautiful people at Wesleyan University. He was jealous. He was envious. The chief priests and Pharisees were slaves to their own malicious envy. It was out of control. Number two, they feared that Rome would see the political uprising of Jesus and come and take away their place. Place likely refers to the temple and by implication their religious system. This was similar to when Stephen, uh, the martyr, uh, stood before the council in Acts 6, 13, and 14, and false witnesses were coming and accusing him by saying, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. It's the same thing in Acts 21, 28, where the Jews from Asia cried out against, men, uh, against Paul, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Same word as John eleven forty eight. The chief priests and Pharisees didn't want to lose their precious temple or system and pay particular attention to the word our, our place, our nation. Our position, that was their concern. Number three, they feared losing their nation. Again, they said our nation. They loved their positions of power and prestige and influence in the Jewish nation. And I don't think that they feared that the Romans would come and somehow just wipe out the entire uh, Jewish nation, uh, Israel. It's more likely that they feared losing what political and religious power they had under the authority of the nation of Rome, and that was significant to them. Their main concern seemed to be themselves. Everyone will believe in him and they'll take away our place and our nation. It was about them. An interesting point historically, what they killed Jesus to prevent ended up happening in 70 A.D., when Titus the Roman invaded Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and Judaism was from that point on forever changed. Temple records destroyed. There can be no Messiah for the Jews because they have no way to trace it back to the Davidic lineage. It's done. Judaism is, for all intents and purposes, done. Jealousy, self-preservation, lust for power and prestige, and radical zeal for tradition controlled, it manipulated the Sanhedrin. And at this moment, the high priest spoke up. Prophetic destination. Prophetic destination. What I mean by destination is not Mexico or the Bahamas, although that would be nice right now. Let's get a boat. We'll all go. The Jerusalem church cruise. But I'll probably get sick, so it won't. Anyway. What I mean by destination is that Caiaphas's prophecy and its fulfillment from verses 49 through 50 were destined. 
or ordained or predetermined by God. Prophecy proves the sovereignty of God over everything. God was sovereign over the arrest, trial, lashing, crucifixion, shame, and pain of his son. What Caiaphas said in verses 49 to 50 was prophetic. It was layered with meaning and was eventually fulfilled in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was planned before time began. The cross was plan A, and there is and never was a plan B. God predestined His Son dying for the people. Jesus even prophesied about it before it happened. Crucifixion was certain. In Luke 24, 44, after Jesus was resurrected, He met with His disciples over some fish for breakfast. That's an interesting twist. I guess that was a Mediterranean thing. And, and said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Must be fulfilled. Then verse 46 further explains that his suffering and resurrection were predicted in the Old Testament. Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 3.18 says that God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer and that it was fulfilled. Write down Acts 4.26 and 28. Acts 4.26 and 28. Study that this week. It mirrors John 11. It says that Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Jews all did what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. In the middle of the meeting of the Sanhedrin, this great council, Caiaphas spoke prophetic words describing the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. He didn't even know the profoundness of his own words. Who was Caiaphas? Caiaphas was high priest from A.D. 18 to 36. An ossuary inscribed with the name Caiaphas was found in Jerusalem back in 1991, which I think is interesting. He was a son-in-law of Annas who served as high priest from A.D. 6 to 15 and who still, at the time of Caiaphas' ruling, still had significant influence in Judaism during Caiaphas' reign. Caiaphas was very political. Beneath Roman rule, the high priest became a sort of political puppet for Rome Beneath Roman rule, um, it, it, it didn't look good for the high priest. The Jewish Qumran community called him the wicked priest. Caiaphas presided over the Sanhedrin. He held authority over all the chief priests and the temple treasurer and the common priests and the Levites. Notice a few things about what this influential man said to the Sanhedrin. A couple, couple things. Verses 49 through 50. Number one, his arrogance. He looked at the council and said, now know who's in the council here. You know nothing at all. All right, tell us what you really think, Caiaphas. Thank you for the commentary. According to Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, the Sadducees were really discourteous. And uh, high priest Caiaphas was a Sadducee. Number two. Self-preservation was on his mind too. He said, nor do you understand that it is better for you. It's better for you. Number three, Caiaphas was bloodthirsty. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. His intent was not gospel. Caiaphas suggested murdering Jesus 
to preserve their power and influence. William Hendrickson wrote this, quote, Under the guise of noble patriotism, this unscrupulous scoundrel was trying to get rid of an obstacle to his own popularity and glory. Number four, though Caiaphas didn't intend it this way, his words were essentially gospel. Look at verses 51 and 52. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, there is so much that we could say on this one point. We could go for a long time about Caiaphas' prophecy. God put these words into Caiaphas' mouth. And here's what his prophecy meant. Jesus Christ would die for the nation or in the place of Israel. He would redeem sinners from the nation of Israel. But Jesus would also die for and redeem sinners from all ethne, the nations, the Gentiles. God had and still has children scattered throughout the nations. Do you ever think about that, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are not yet brothers and sisters in Christ. They will be saved, but they're not saved yet. And they're scattered all throughout the world because God has a plan for the ethne, the nations. That's a really cool thought. I wonder what Iraqis are our brothers and sisters in Christ. I wonder what members of ISIS are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Who will take the gospel to them? Who loves ISIS? Who will give their life for ISIS to repent and believe and find their ultimate joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ alone to the glory and worship of God? He's gathering the people, his people, his children into one. And it begins at Jerusalem and it spreads And more children are brought in and adopted into God's family as one. Caiaphas was right. The whole nation would not perish. For everyone who looks to Jesus Christ in faith will be united to him and unified into one body, therefore saved from eternal hell. And they will never perish. Caiaphas was right. Jesus died in the place of sinners so that sinners from all the nations will never perish. Jesus took our place took our sin and shame, took the wrath of God headed for us, took the punishment we deserve, paid our sin debt in full to God, earned our justification and freedom, and earned our right, our right to be called children of God. And that is for people from all nations, Iraq, Iran, North Korea, Yemen, Oman, Syria, Libya, China, Africa, And on and on, John often wrote with layered meaning. And here, Caiaphas' words are layered with meaning. If you're wrestling with the doctrine of predestination and election, which I think some of you are, I want you to look hard at verse 53. It's, It's absolutely glorious. It's glorious. Caiaphas prophesied about Gentiles scattered abroad who hadn't heard the gospel. 
The gospel hadn't gone to the Gentiles yet, yet there were children of God scattered out there who needed to hear yet to be saved. God's children were out there. They needed to hear the gospel and get saved, which Paul and plenty of others helped with, and all of them would be gathered into one. That was God's destined plan. Now, if you look back to John 10, Jesus already mentioned this principle in verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. They will listen to the voice of Jesus and there will be one flock with one shepherd. Now, can we just say hallelujah, praise God, to him be the glory that the gospel came to the Gentiles. Amen? All right. Jesus will redeem people from all nations. Jerusalem church, this is why our vision must go much broader than Lancaster County. God has a heart for the nations. He is gathering into one all his children still out there scattered across the globe. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross for those from every nation, every tribe, every tongue is the glorious glint of beauty amidst the baseness of John 11. This is the gospel. This is what we call good news. This is awesome news. And Caiaphas, who said it, didn't even know what he was saying. What he meant by his words were, we need to kill Jesus. This was a treasonous conspiracy. Caiaphas' words made it all so clear they needed to kill Jesus. There wasn't any other option. We must stop this man immediately. Verse 53 says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This was his death sentence. It was only a matter of time when this was carried out, when their decision would come to fruition. The verdict and the sentence were fixed. They were going to kill the Son of God. Throughout history, you know, we, we've seen atrocities committed, Hitler Stalin, Mao, Mussolini, Kim Jong-il, ISIS. None compare with this. None compare with this. This was the most monstrous conspiracy of history. This was high treason against God and His Son. Jump down to verse 57. Now we see the chief priests and Pharisees They're wielding their power over others. They pulled the people into this. If anyone knew where Jesus was, they needed to disclose that to these powerful rulers, his his location, what he was up to. This was the conspiracy. It's spreading throughout Jerusalem. And yet their wickedness advanced the sovereign plan of God. This was all part of the plan. Can you see how all of this was working together to culminate in the glory of a Roman cross where the Son of God died for the people? Now we can look at this and we could say, oh man, this is nasty. This is horrible. This is the most wicked thing I've ever set my eyes on. But at the same time, can't you look at this 
and see the glory of God and see the gospel and see your salvation in it. That God used all of these details to accomplish your salvation so that you could enjoy God. And he brought you into his family. Man, this is precious. This is good news. God's glory would come through all of this, yet the conflict was mounting. There was an escalating tension, escalating tension. The heat was on. So what did Jesus do? Jesus escaped one last time to Ephraim near the wilderness. A public appearance was very dangerous, and it wasn't God's time for him to go. And so he fled Jerusalem, but he would courageously return. And I love this part. He would finish what was started. In verse 55, we learn that the Passover was close, so we're likely within weeks before the murder of Jesus. Chapter 12, which is coming next week, will take us within days in the coming weeks. People were flooding into Jerusalem. They were purifying themselves, making preparations to get ready for this great Passover feast. And purity was important to the Jews, especially in the time of Passover. Number six explains that people needed to be clean to observe the Passover. And and there was uh, strict guidelines. There were strict guidelines of how someone became clean It was steps that took days. And so as people arrived and prepared, this tension escalated. There was a buzz in Jerusalem over Jesus. Verse 56 explains that people, they were looking around for Jesus and conversing in the temple about whether he would show up. This would be a little bit like people milling around at a butcher's convention and talking about whether the the black Angus bull will show up. All right? People could feel this tension. They, they saw the inherent risk in the whole situation of Jesus coming back into town for the Passover. So they're like, is he going to come? Is he going to be here? We know what's going on here, man. This is like tense. The truth is, there was no risk for Jesus. He was secure in his Father's will for him. And he would willingly and joyfully return for one glorious purpose to be delivered up and crucified. Why? Why? What is the purpose of this divine tragedy? Can we answer that together? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. There it is, folks. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He would go back to Jerusalem and he would give his life for the many and they would be redeemed and they would experience eternal joy in him. He would get everyone. He would lose none. Jesus received death threats. Plenty of people wanted him dead. I don't think we know what that's like to live underneath that. But he didn't buy a Glock and pack heat. And there's something cool about thinking about that, but I can't go too far with that. Jesus carrying a Glock. I, I think he 
He probably would have. No, he won't. I don't know. But it would have been awesome. He made Glocks for our joy. He didn't consult with ADT for video surveillance to make sure that they were home even when he was not. He didn't hire a, a whole entourage of, of uh, bodyguards who had really cool black SUVs and awesome looking suits with those little curly things that I wish I could wear someday. He didn't even take off for some secluded island under some witness protection program. Instead, he retreated to Ephraim, but he planned to come back to Jerusalem to do what he was sent to do. He was the one man who would die for the people. Only he could do it, and only he would do it. Father, your son is awesome. Jesus, thank you for being awesome. You knew exactly what was happening when you escaped to Ephraim. You weren't fleeing the problem. It just wasn't your time. And Jesus, with such courage, oh, you, you went back. You went back. And if we think about that, you went back to get us. You went back in the hostility to save the hostages of sin. And I pray, God, that we treasure your Son, Jesus Christ, more than anything else because we are united to Him by faith because He came back and rescued us. And God, I pray that in chapter 12 through the end of John, we will see the glory of God in the Son of God and that we will cherish Him. Oh, that we would find our greatest joy in Him because of what He did for us. God, help us to pay attention. And God, I pray something simple for all of us here listening to this prayer and praying along. Help us to obey what we hear because we find it really hard to obey you. We want to because of what your Holy Spirit is doing in us, but we find it really hard. And so I just pray that you help us to see the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ and to be so overcome with awe that we are compelled to holiness and obedience and start with me first, God. Help us to be a radically devoted church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.